Good evening. Before we begin the proceedings tonight, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our own knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. Thanks to everyone for coming tonight to what I think is going to be a fantastic and rather explosive topic in a bottle. Before I start, I also need to say that we're being filmed tonight and it's for internal purposes by Sydney Water. So if anyone's got a problem with that, they may not want to ask questions later, but please feel free. Okay, my name is Tina Perinotto and I edit a publication called The Fifth Estate. Now that's an online newspaper focused on creating more sustainable built environment. We've been going for seven years and we've got, got pretty strong readership among sustainability consultants, designers, engineers, developers and government. I've even heard Greg Hunt read some of our stories. Clearly not enough. <laughs> I think plastic water is right down our alley. But then again I think just about everything is down our alley because so much of human activity is centred on the built environment and just about everything we do in it has sustainability and climate change outcomes. So why is this such an explosive topic? We started this series of talks um, with two really interesting issues, sea level rises and climate messaging. Now these are really big topics. They're much bigger than ourselves. They're about systemic change and politics. And yes, we've got a part to play in that, perhaps a big part, but bottled water, this is small and personal, something we can easily do something about right now. And we don't have many excuses. I mean, it's not as if it's addictive like, you know, junk food or sugar. <laughs> so it's actually really challenging. According to Choice magazine this month, and thanks to one of our um, speakers, Kylie, to, to, for pointing this out, but um, Choice magazine has found that beverage companies have raked in just this year $688 million from the sale of bottled water. The uplift in value, if that's what you can call it, from the cost of the raw material coming out of the tap, is around 2,000% said choice, but Kylie reckons it's about 2,600%. So how do they do this? Um, there's an implied image of superiority, images of snowy mountaintops and lovely crisp colours. So manufacturers do things to water to show that it's better than, um, than water coming out of a tap. They put it through reverse osmosis, distillation or ozonation, whatever that is. They've even got um, flavoured water, aquapura wildberry fruit, contains um, obviously a wildberry fruit flavour with nearly seven teaspoons of sugar. So imagine what that does to your teeth, thinking you're drinking nice pure water. Now, I remember the shock I felt listening to the radio one day when I heard an expert say that there's actually no evidence for, for saying that we need two and a half litres or three litres of water, whatever it is a day. No scientific evidence, no study to prove anything of the sort. Apparently, we get all our water and, and hydration needs in regular food and tea, etc. So how did all this happen? Well, tonight we're going to hear about this. And... Um, the only thing, I mean, what I'd like to say before we start, the thing we do know about bottled water is that it's actually gone down in advertising schools as the gold standard in marketing con jobs. Now, they're my words, not the marketing schools. So our speakers tonight, our first speaker 
is Gay Hawkins, who, with Kane Reese, our second speaker, um, is an author of a book called Plastic Water, The Social and Material Life of Bottled Water. The book is based on a huge Australia Research Council project and it focuses on the socio-technical and political history of bottled water. Gay is a professor of cultural studies and social theory at the Institute for Culture and Society at the University of Western Sydney. She has published widely on the ethics of waste, material cultures of plastic, the construction of markets and water practices. Recent books are Plastic Water and The Accumulation and Accumulation of the Material Politics of Plastic, co-edited with Jennifer Gabris and, Ma and Mike Michael from Rutledge 2013. So, to the stage please, and please give a, a warm welcome to Gay. Thanks a lot, Tina, and thank you all for coming. Um, I really look forward to your ideas and insights into this very important issue, and I look forward to the conversation we'll have at the end of these short talks. Now, as Tina's mentioned, Kane and I and our other co-author, Emily Potter, uh, published a book at the end of last year called Plastic Water, and this was part of a very large ARC project, looking into how these new markets in water emerged. Now, I'm sure all of you can uh, remember the time when you could go to work or go to uni or go for a little stroll in the park without having to carry a bottle of water with you all the time. And maybe you also had a backpack that didn't have a special slot that you could uh, put your water in. And if you're thirsty, you could just go to a bubbler and get a drink because they usually weren't that far away. Now, those were the days, and they've rapidly disappeared. And in fact, what, what prompted this project for me was coming into a, a lecture one year and realising that something had changed. Uh, as I looked up at the, sort of the tiered seating of 500 students, I realised that about 80% of them had a bottle of water in front of them. They'd now decided that they couldn't last for an hour without having to constantly sip. Now, this was a very sudden and dramatic change when... when constantly drinking became a new social practice, so it, it was obviously something that needed to be investigated. Now, it's very easy to make cheap shots about bottled water, to ridicule it as a silly fad that's conned people into paying for water at a massive markup when they could just as easily turn on the tap. But this doesn't really help us understand the significance of this new market in water, how it was created, and what its, what its long-term impacts are. Now, ridiculing bottled water drinkers as sort of gullible fools or demonising beverage corporations as evil forces seeking to privatise a precious, precious resource doesn't really get close to the complexities of this, this new market and this new drinking practice. And I want to sort of avoid both those approaches tonight and instead look very closely at the sort of history of how this new market uh, was developed and what its deeper implications are for safe public tap water and infrastructure. Now, there's no question that bottled water markets are impacting on tap water, and Kylie from Sydney Water is going to talk about that uh, later on. And the issue I want to focus on is how these impacts can be understood and how they can be challenged and reduced. So I'm going to start with a very short potted history of the rise of bottled water markets. Right, now, a lot of people think that bottled water markets are just a sort of unfolding 
continuation of the earliest forms of marketised water, which were really boutique mineral waters from the 19th century. And they were part of a new sort of rise of what, what we might call hydrocultures. That is the use of water in a whole range of their, um, therapeutic practices, uh, taking the waters, spa cultures, drinking water from specialist um, springs that were discovered all around Europe. These were very, very interesting new cultural practices that emerged in the early to mid-19th century and were one of the first ways in which water became considered as a very unique, niche and specialist product. Now, there's, there's no doubt that the sort of um, boutique mineral waters that we all know about, such as Evian, uh, prefigured uh, the bottled water markets that we've seen uh, rapidly grow in the last 30 years, but there's also a very significant difference in the markets that have emerged more recently. Recent markets aren't really targeting elite consumption practices. They're not really selling a table water. These recent markets have really turned uh, water into what's referred to in the beverage industry as a fast-moving consumer good. So these new markets have really turned water into a convenience drink. It's part of fast food culture, and it's very much, they're very much based on making water mobile, making it convenient and accessible, inserting it into all the spaces that people might pass through as they're moving around cities. And there's certainly evidence of product diversification within beverage companies, that is, beverage companies saying, how can we get a new line in, in, in this brand? How can we um, develop... New, new products, but they're also an opportunist, opportunistic response from beverage companies to a range of more evident water crises that have been escalating since the 70s. Drought, water scarcity, uh, scares around the quality of tap water, all these sorts of issues that have happened all around the world have certainly prompted beverage markets to sit up and take notice and think, oh, I wonder how we could uh, exploit this new market opportunity. Now, they're very really an important uh, forces. But the other thing we found was that there were many other variables in play as well. And they're the sort of variables that you don't really think about when you look at bottled water markets. And let's face it, an enormous amount of effort has to go into turning water into water. Because really, that's all that's happening with bottled water. So to requalify water, to give it a whole new set of meanings and values and, and, and qualities so that people think that purchasing it and paying a 200% or more markup is a sensible idea, takes an enormous amount of effort. And that effort doesn't just involve marketing. It involves a whole range of ordinary material devices. Things like, for example, the PET plastic bottle. Now, PET plastic was invented around the mid-70s, and it was certainly uh, you know, a transformative material. It has revolutionised the beverage industries. For a long time, beverage companies were selling their product largely in, in aluminium tins or glass. They were really interested in trying to find a lighter, more plastic, uh, a lighter bottle, a plastic bottle that could containerise beverages. That proved to be quite difficult because... Bever um, beverages or juices, for example, could uh, explode under pressurisation or, or the, the plastic would be affected by them. So there was an immense amount of research into what would be the perfect plastic to containerise uh, beverages, and that's where PET plastic came from. Once that plastic entered into the beverages packaging, it rapidly transformed it. Now 80% of beverages are packaged in PET bottles. 
And PET bottles then started to form a quite remarkable relationship with, with water. When beverage companies decided to containerise water, they found that the sort of optical the tr qualities of PET plastic, its translucency, tended to uh, resonate quite remarkably with water. Water simply looked purer and, and more exciting when it was contained in PET plastic. So there's no doubt that PET plastic intensified the sort of qualities of water, that water looks better in PET plastic. The other important element in the formation of these new markets was branding. You simply could not have got a new market in, in water without really advanced techniques in branding. branding the, the branding of so many things has really escalated over the last 20 years. Brand cultures have really taken off. More and more things are finding that they are being organised under a brand platform. So branding has become a really central dynamic in the organisation of new social values. And this, of course, has been fundamental to uh, constructing markets in water. The other thing that was important was just the rise of popular science discourses. More and more now we're seeing science being central to marketing. Uh, the health food industry, herbs and vitamins. You've now got a whole sort of group of consumers who are concerned about their own health. So selling health, selling science, attaching those kind of qualities to water made it uh, also very attractive to um, these new markets. So these kind of more elements that you don't really think about, the role of the bottle, the role of the brand, the role of new science discourses and, and the construction of, of, of publics and or consumers who are open to hear scientific messages as marketing were all really central to turning uh, water into a fast-moving consumer good and, and constructing massive new markets in it that took off very, very rapidly in the late 80s. Okay, now, what are the impacts of these markets? I haven't got you any market figures, but there's no question that bottled water markets were for a long time regarded as one of the most successful new trends in the beverage industries. They took off very, very fast, and they grew very, very rapidly. Now, um, <clears throat> the key question we wanted to investigate in this big study was, well, how do bottles interact with tap water? When you talk to beverage companies, they say, our market, our, our market has nothing to do with tap water. It's just a fast-moving consumer good. It's just for convenience. It's a completely different sort of product. It's got nothing to do with what's coming out of taps, and we're not seeking to compete with uh, public infrastructure at all. When you look closely, you can see that, that that claim is not really that true. Even though that the sort of uh, marketing strategies may not be aggressively attacking public infrastructure, in very subtle ways it is. And I'm going to look at some of those ways now. Okay, so the first way in which um, bottled water markets are impacting on tap is that they're generating doubt and uncertainty about the quality of water. Now, the minute you generate doubt, the minute you raise questions about, well, what are you drinking out of a tap? How safe is it? The minute you just generate a slight anxiety about public supply, then you're creating the possibility of people uh, shifting away from taps and making different choices. And one of the things that you can see very clearly is that bottled water markets exploit uh, the ubiquity and anonymity of tap water. They ba they're basically saying that people well, how can you trust tap water? It's not even branded. 
And we all know that brands are where the, you know, the, lo the locus of trust is nowadays. So how can you trust something that's anonymous, it's just coming out of a pipe, you don't really know where that, what's in that pipe. So undermining trust by implicitly sort of saying that anything that's branded must automatically be more trustworthy and safer and superior is a very, very canny strategy. So they're not going head to head with, as I've said, public infrastructure, but they're just generating a series of doubts and question marks. And they're also generating hierarchies of water. They're really saying that, sure, tap water might be fine for showering and or whatever, but you really, if you really want to look after your health, you need to go up a niche in terms of what you're drinking. So creating distinctions amongst water is one of their most successful strategies. And let's look at how this happens in a little ad for Brita. Now, they're not selling... This is an ad for Brita water filters. They're not selling bottled water. They're selling filters on your home tap. But look at how they're raising doubt about the quality of what's coming out of your tap. And we'll just have a look at that video now. Thanks. We, we could just go back to the PowerPoint and show it in the... Oh, here we go. Toilet flushing. So that's a very smart ad, just connecting toilets and taps and just saying that that's the same water, so you need to protect yourself from that kind of contamination. So if, that, that's one of hundreds of examples I could show you in which bottled water marketing is very subtly undermining your trust and your security in tap water. And what, what you're seeing there is, is an attempt to differentiate waters, to create... Um, uh, differences and distinctions and hierarchies in forms of water and to say that really tap water cannot be trusted. Now here's another recent ad. You might have seen this getting the train to uni. Um, I saw it a couple of weeks ago on a train. I had to jump off the train and take a photo. I was that outraged. Now here you see how bottled water campaigns are imagining the bottle as an alternative infrastructure. So here's Mount Franklin saying, we could be the nation's hydration. Right? So you might think that's just an, uh, an innocent piece of innocuous marketing. In fact, what you're seeing there is how an, a, a bottle is being positioned as infrastructure. It's saying a bottle based on a, an extractive source of water supply, uh, extracting water from various water supplies, containerizing it, could become a, a way of delivering water to Australia. So this is just very... I, I find this so unsettling and disturbing uh, because it's simply sort of inserting the bottle into the public imagination as a possible form of infrastructural supply. So th there's no way that this bottle is saying, I'm just a fast-moving consumer, um, good for people who are in the city and might feel thirsty. This bottle is positioning itself as... Uh, a source of water supply for the population as an alternative to the state. So this bottle is, from, from my perspective, undermining the demos in very profound ways, undermining the sense of water as a shared, common thing and part of our democratic right. OK, another way in which bottled water markets are very effectively 
are expanding their market reach is by exploiting state failure. And some of you might have been aware of the massive scandal in Michigan a couple of months ago where it was revealed that due to poor maintenance, the um, public water supply was delivering highly um, contaminated water to households. That is water full of lead, which had, you know, it's a neurological toxin for all people, but particularly children. And, you know, catastrophic effects on that community due to poor public maintenance, basically. Now, what happened in that situation was that all these American media celebrities started selling truckloads, sending truckloads of bottled water to Flint as a, as a well-meaning gesture. And then you got celebrity activist Michael Moore saying, please do not send bottled water. What you were doing in that gesture is basically accepting state failure and saying, let's let a beverage corporation step in and do what the state has failed to do. The real struggle should be insisting that the state fixes its water supply, that people who've paid taxes get safe water. So um, that was a very good campaign on the part of Michael Moore to say, you know, do not by default insert beverage companies into water supplies through this strategy. Now, another... Uh, impact, of course, of bottled water markets is just their massive contribution to plastics waste around the world. Uh, this is a photo taken during our research of a child in Hanoi, in the plastics villages on the outskirts of Hanoi, recycling bottles. If you want to know what plastic bottle recycling looks like, here it is. So all the claims that you know, beverage companies make about, oh, it's fine to drink bottled water, the bottles are recyclable, a very small percentage of plastic is recycled. Most of it is downcycled, that is to make more cheap, shoddy plastic things. And a lot of the recycling is, takes, places, it takes place in places where it's unsafe, it's toxic, it's using child labour. And uh, it's simply... Uh, not a way to deliver water, and the plastics the global plastics waste crisis, as we all know, is, is one of our most serious environmental challenges. So claims about recycling are overstated, and if you look at plastic as a material, that is certainly not a material that's made to be used once only. It's one of the most durable materials around. It's intensely resource-intensive. It's part of our oil-based carbon economies. And the idea that this material should become a single use, used rapidly and then thrown away, is, is, this image is pretty chastening. So that's, again, another hidden impact of bottled water markets. OK, how do we fight back against bottles? I think we need to continually assert the role of water in building citizenship and community and connection. Our pipes and catchments aren't just engineering feats, they are social feats. They connect us. They make us feel part of a community. They uh, link us spatially to Sydney and its beautiful water catchment. They are what make us part of a democratic community. The fact that there has been public state investment in providing universal access to water and where everyone pays the same price, even though it's very expensive to get water to some parts of Sydney. That is democracy at work, that is your taxes at work, and that is the, the, the public benefit of water being cared for and, and shared around. The other thing that can happen is we can expose the externalities of these markets, and we just saw plastics waste. Uh, increasing amounts of, of plastic litter are evident all around the city. Uh, 
The beverage companies have fought long and hard against container deposit legislation and good on the beer government for, for pushing back against that and introducing it because this is uh, an opportunity for those companies to start bearing some of the cost of the extraordinary sort of uh, impacts that they generate on urban space and environments. The other thing I would say is when we bring back water fountains, so many places are starting to do this. That has proved to be one of the most effective strategies against increasing amounts of plastic litter in public spaces. And let's just call them bubblers or water fountains, not refill stations, which implicitly endorses the market as by saying, yep, you need a bottle to get a drink. You don't. You just need a bubbler. And again, bubblers are things that we have in common, things that we share with each other. They're part of a sense of being together uh, as a community. So I think good water futures involve continually asserting the value of public water supplies and public infrastructure. Much research around, you know, in these neoliberal days where everyone talks about markets being efficient, there's plenty of research to show that markets are in fact very inefficient when it comes to delivering water. Water is hard to move around, it's expensive, it requires very large-scale infrastructure that often states or public-private partnerships are the best and most efficient ways of delivering it. I think we need to continually assert publicness as a value. It seems to me that we are no longer allowed to use that word, but it needs to be uh, restated loud and clear that public means services that are inclusive, that, are un that offer universal access, and that address social and ecolog ecological objectives in caring for water for both people and water supplies and catchments. And I also think we need greater community participation in water governance, more collaborative models of governance, shifting from the government provides water to more interactive forms of governance in which communities can participate in caring for and managing water supplies. Because in inve investing in, in water supplies, having a sense of common ownership of that will bring much better outcomes. Look at how effectively Sydney reduced its water use during the drought. That shows a commitment to a public water supply in a sense that everyone was sharing and reacting responsibly to a common problem. You will never get that when water is seen as a market thing. Water is a community resource. It's part of the commons. It's what we all share and it needs to be defended. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Gay. That was fantastic and very, very interesting and challenging. So our next speaker is Kane Race, who's an Associate Professor of Gender and Cultural Studies at the University of Sydney. He's published widely in the areas of drug use, queer theory, HIV prevention and public health. This is going to be interesting. <laughs> Kane is the author of Pleasure Consuming Medicine, The Queer Politics of Drugs, 2009 Duke University Press. He's a founding member of the Association for the Social Sciences and Humanities in HIV. So we're busting to hear what you're going to say, Kay. Thanks, Tina. Um, so, I mean, I guess one of the um, big challenges that we faced in writing this book was trying to think about how, out of the sort of multiplicity of possible arrangements of drinking water, uh, this particular um, way of arranging drinking water has become, um, you know, has had such huge growth and investment and has served to sort of um, change uh, the way we think about water, um, which is sometimes thought about in certain places and certain contexts as a public resource, 
uh, into a sort of a, a private personal resource um, and also a personal resource. So, uh, uh, hydrating the self or, or replenishing the body's water needs as a sort of a personal responsibility rather than a collective responsibility. And as part of this uh, research, I um, had a look at some of the uh, drinking practices actually in uh, Bangkok because we're interested in, in how this plays out in various different locations uh, with various um, forms of water provision available to the public. And one of the things that um, we decided to do when we did these case studies was actually try and follow the object, um, literally to try and notice where this object appeared, um, as a way of sort of providing insight into some of the, the, the ways that this product was being valued and some of the material affordances of the bottle um, and how these affordances helped to constitute drinking water as a particular sort of practice, um, creating new sorts of relations with water. So here are some of the <laughs> images that um, I came across. This is um, a traditional trade store uh, in Bangkok, and you'll see here that there's sort of a multiplicity of beverage practices um, in evidence. In particular, you've got glass bottles being stored alongside um, uh, plastic bottles, uh, various sorts of plastic bottles, actually. Um, now, in Bangkok, at the time that I did this research, um, glass bottles were quite popular for selling soft drinks um, alongside some plastic bottles. And vendors get paid, a re uh, paid for return bottles, but the imperative to actually return the bottle on the part of the consumer actually grounds the consumer in certain ways in relation to the vendor. Now, in Bangkok, they've come up with some quite ingenious sort of solutions to this. I don't know if people have seen in Bangkok markets that you can literally... Uh, vendors will often put your soft drink into a plastic bag and you can carry it away. And this, you know, saves the problem of having to hang around the vendor um, <laughs> and return the bottle at the end. Um, but, and, and so I think this sort of thing actually gives you some insight into some of the affordances of PET bottles in particular. Um, here are some more photos. This is uh, Ceylon, which is a trendy business district. We can see how the bottle might be bound up in the sort of performance of a a middle-class cosmopolitan identity. But the other places that I saw water were place, oops, places like at the end of Soyuz. Um, these were large banks of water bottles that um, uh, uh, people who, who drove bikes as sort of taxis up and down the Soy had recourse to. At petrol stations, this is now a common site in Australia, of course. Um, and in places like uh, taxis. Um, so you can see here that um, certain qualities of the PET bottle of water um, uh, are being given meaning and value within the sort of context of the urban infrastructure of Bangkok. Uh, in particular, qualities such as disposability and lightness. Um, and, um, and these qualities really help to equip this idea of the mobile consumer. Um, these qualities are also really valued when you begin to look at some of the um, advertising around bottled water. So this is... It's not working. <laughs> oh. oh, I jumped ahead of myself. Okay, this is what I wanted to show you. So um, here we can see that uh, if you have a quick skim of the text down the bottom, you can see how the values of disposability and um, lightness or portability are being connected 
to this concept that we decided was you know, really important to find out about, this concept of hydration. Um, so hydration is quite, in quite particular ways being linked to this sort of sense of a mobile subject who pops something into their purse, pocket, briefcase or knapsack. So uh, early on in the project we decided that we really needed to, to get a grasp on where this concept of hydration came from. Um, when did it appear, what's the history behind it, and so on. Um, so this is just the idea, which you're probably all familiar with, that you need to replace fluids, that you need to stay well hydrated, possibly by drinking eight glasses of eight, ounce, uh, eight ounces of water a day. Um, also other ideas, such as the idea that thirst is not a reliable guide to the body's needs, which is very prevalent in, in uh, bottled water marketing. And also the idea um, that you probably should be taking small frequent sips <laughs> uh, throughout the course of the day, as I am now. <laughs> um, so where did this concept come from and how did it become so popular? And when we first started looking at this, uh, in the usual sorts of places that you'd expect to find answers, such as nutrition science um, and mainstream medicine, there was nothing. Nada. <laughs> Um, there was a couple of 1940s studies of the physiological effects of water depletion in the desert. <laughs> um, and this was to do with um, sending troops out into the desert at that time. But there was nothing else. And so, so we basically tried to think about where bottled water first emerged in association with what practices. Um, and we had one of our research assistants look through fitness magazines in the 1970s and 80s. And... <laughs> Jane Fonda. Oh no, it's Farrah Fawcett, not Jane Fonda. I beg your pardon. There's the queer theory. <laughs> so our hunch proved to be right. Um, this allowed us to pinpoint the popularisation of the idea of hydration really quite precisely and link it to this series of scientific experiments conducted um, by this bloke. Um, yes, here we go. David Costill, who worked at Ball State um, University in the States and was funded by Gatorade to basically set up a clinic uh, on exercise science. So he went to Gatorade asking for about $7,000 to study the effects of water depletion on marathon runners. And um, Gatorade said, are you sure you only want $7,000? Here's $70,000. And he was able to set up his lab. Um, Costell basically found that distant runners were in dire need of uh, fluids. At the time, uh, marathon rules forbade runners from uh, oops, forbade runners from drinking um, uh, in the first 10 k's, and so you know runners were basically um, falling over um, out of dehydration in the middle of races um, with body temperatures of up to 43 degrees. Um, for physiological reasons, quite particular to the experience of marathon running, um, uh, uh, it was not unusual for dehydrated runners to experience little or no desire for water. So Costell advised that the athlete must be aware of their body's demand for water and realise that the thirst, thirst mechanism is an inadequate indicator of bodily needs. Also because of the discomfort of carrying large amounts of fluid around in the stomach when you're a jogger, small frequent feedings appear to be most efficient and effective. Uh, so, aha, bingo. Um, and uh, these are sort of qualities that we see in, 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 in people's everyday practices today, such that Valtin writing a, a 
piece on um, personal hydration, uh, was able to talk about you know, how common this practice is. But how did we get from this um, uh, fairly elite practice of sort of professional um, science, uh, exercise science, to, to become such a sort of widely popularised concept? And the answer to this, of course, had to do with the growing popularity of health and fitness that took place uh, from the 1970s. Um, so Frank Shorter won the Olympics in 1972. This led to the popularisation of jogging and aerobics, which were really not popular pursuits before the 1970s. The 1970s also saw the emergence and growth of public marathons, and the beverage industry simply picked up some of these discourses from um, professional um, athleticism and uh, put it into the public domain through, through uh, magazines such as uh, Joggers Weekly and so on. Of course, over the 1980s, health and fitness became to symbolise in quite politically significant ways. Um, they became associated with moral worth and virtuous citizenship and acquired a particular sort of political significance because they became the vehicle for the expression of certain values such as uh, personal responsibility, self-discipline, self-determination, willpower, all these possibilities, all these uh, qualities that became emphasised in the sort of discourses of, for example, the new right. Um, uh, so with the breakdown of the welfare state um, and the reorganisation of responsibility for health. So we can really understand, and this was especially significant for the middle classes at this time in the context of the reorganisation of the welfare state because the um, idea of state dependence was, um, uh, you know, um, uh, negatively valued in this context and replaced with, you know, the sort of positive valuation of self-responsibility, willpower and um, bodily activity. So we can understand this moment really as an event in which a constellation of elements came together and began to mediate each other in quite unpredictable ways. This wasn't a case of this is inevitably going to happen, but rather, as Gay was saying uh, earlier, um, a sort of quite particular um, coming together of different elements that allowed this, this market and this way of positioning bottled water to emerge. Um, one of the other things we became interested in is how this ability to sort of calculate um, the body's water needs comes to be distributed by the beverage industry across a range of settings and material devices. Um, so I spent a lot of time on websites um, looking at the millions of hydration calculators that are available. Of course, since we did the research, there's, there's now a whole industry in smartphone apps that will calculate your body's water needs. And there are even um, uh, devices... So I saw this one device... Uh, that attaches to, um, I think, to your water bottle and based on your, in a Fitbit sort of idea, based on your sort of bodily activity, will calculate your body's hydration needs um, for you. And this is really interesting, I think, because here you have this sort of idea of self-practice, you know, getting fit and so on, that's articulating with this um, uh, uh, supposed need to calculate the body's water needs and so, 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 so this calculation device is articulating with personal you know, desires to improve one's performance and look after one's health, but it's also articulating with the market in really quite particular ways. Um, it operates as a market device, if you like. By offering these seemingly authoritative procedures for self-assessment, it brings consumer practices into articulation with the market for water products, um, thereby creating demand. 
So you can see here that um, when you begin to situate the practice of drinking water historically and attend to it at this level of detail, we can see that in a relatively short space of time, 30 or 40 years, the concept of hydration has fundamentally reorganised our relation to water and how we arrange for its provision. And we can see that these changes uh, in the rationality of drinking uh, really don't just depend on marketing discourse itself, but actually also on a whole range of devices, material settings, um, and, uh, you know, urban arrangements, um, actually. Um, so I think I'll leave it there. Thanks, Kane. That was really interesting. And I'm never going to be looking at a bottle of plastic ever in the same way ever again. <laughs> now, our next speaker um, is Kylie Yeant. Now, Kylie is from the opposition to bottled water. <laughs> Kylie's from um, Sydney Water, and she's the manager of education, engagement, and partnerships. And Sydney Water is Australia's largest water service provider. Kylie's got qualifications in environmental science and education and a career spent working in local and state government. Kylie's a passionate practitioner, especially when it comes to using good science, <laughs> rather than marketing, research and reflective practices to shift public perceptions and behaviours on matters of sustainability. So we're going to be all ears for you, Kylie. Please come. Please welcome Kylie. Hi, everyone. That's um, the introduction, Tina. So Gay and Kane have just spoken about, I guess, a global perspective and a cultural and societal perspective about how bottled water has become so common, I guess, in our day-to-day -day life. Um, I'm going to bring it back down to home. I'm going to bring it back to Sydney uh, because what we've done over the last sort of 12 to 18 months is look quite deeply at our community, our customers. So Sydney Water has close to 5 million customers that kind of go from Greater Sydney out to the Blue Mountains and down to the Illawarra. So a really large customer base. Um, we're, as Tina said, we're Australia's largest water utility. In fact, we're the largest one in the Southern Hemisphere. We've been around for a long, long time, over 127 years, and we're 100% publicly owned, to Gay's point. Um, so we are very much a public service organisation. We're very proud of that. The topic is something that I'm really passionate about. Um, I brought my son. That probably just showed... I, I haven't totally coerced him to be here, but um, my family know that I'm really passionate about that um, because I do believe that we have a great... So we have a great product, I guess in the current terminology, that is something that we've taken for granted. And I think that's quite sad. So I'd like to sort of turn that around. And, um, and I'd I guess I'd like to put it on the agenda as something that we can actually speak about. What we've learned in this research is there's actually, despite the wonderful five years of research, and this is an amazing book, the five years of research in here and a lot of thinking, um, the reflection that I had in the social research that we've done is that there's not a lot of thinking going on. So when people make their choices about what water they drink and how they get it, there's not a lot of thinking. It's taken very much for granted. So despite Sydney's drinking water being great quality, in fact, largely sort of reflected as one of amongst the world's best, it's affordable at less than one cent a litre. Uh, it's sustainable, so there's no packaging. In fact, Sydney, Sydney's drinking water was ranked 
as the fourth lowest in our green, in greenhouse gas emissions compared to any other water utility across Australia, um, and it's locally sourced, and our customer satisfaction in Sydney's drinking water is really high. We've got an average ranking of 8.4 out of 10 for Sydney's drinking water across all of our customers. Despite that, we've got an oxymoron, and that is that, is that 40% of our customers are saying they're not drinking water straight from the tap. And this was kind of phenomenal to us. Um, and this has kind of been, this has been in place now for many, many years, but it has crept up as new and other alternatives to drinking tap water have come in. So we have our man on the top <laughs> and the highest are our tap water drinkers. So 60% of our customer base drink water straight from the tap. We've got 20% of our customers that say they filter their water before they drink it. We've got 10% of our customers, uh, and that in numbers uh, is about 480,000 people, who say they only drink bottled water, so categorically only drink bottled water to meet their drinking needs. Uh, and we've got 6% who boil their water before they drink it. And then the shady character, so shady that you can't quite see it, uh, are made up of 2% who say they don't drink water at all and 2% who um, drink rainwater from a rainwater tank despite being connected to um, town water, if you like. So interesting choices. And um, amongst our total customer base, we know that one in five are specifically saying they're not drinking water straight from the tap because they're concerned about or they have a perception of poor water quality. And yet it's a choice that many of us make, very satisfied with it, and we know that Sydney's drinking water is great quality. So that the measure of perception is very, very powerful in driving choice. Uh, we wanted to, rather than make all sorts of assumptions about why people are making those choices, we wanted to understand more deeply why. Why people are making these choices and how we can use that understanding to better communicate and educate with our community. And that's driven, that's been the driver for why we've done the research and it's now the insight that we're using to help to guide our education, our communication. But before I go there, I just wanted to kind of touch on the question of whether it matters. So, um, and I, I ask yourselves, with an honest display of hands, would you say it matters that 40% of our customers say they're not drinking water straight from the tap. Put your hand up if you say that yes, it matters. So we have a majority, and please be honest, if, for those that are willing to say no, it doesn't matter, please feel free to put your hand up. Okay, so we've got a friendly crowd. <laughs> a friendly crowd. Um, because the, I guess where we've landed is that it does matter, and it matters for four main reasons. One is a matter of trust. And this, this is something that Gay has certainly referred to, um, having access to good quality water that you can trust when you get it straight from your tap is something we should never take for granted. And it is very important for any public organisation, really any organisation, trust is at, actually at the heart of what we do within Sydney Water. Water is essential for life and we need to know we can trust it. The other reason it matters, there's four reasons that we think it matters. The other is it's a matter of a public good, and there's Gay's quote there. Good quality tap water that's safe, affordable, and available to all of us is a true public good. 
alternatives, and they are, they are alternatives like bottled water and filtered water, effectively, as Gay has said, devalue tap water in both indirect and direct ways. They use quite powerful comparative marketing to um, position tap water as lower quality, less healthy and basically inadequate. Um, and that's something that's that now, whilst we're a monopoly for Sydney's drinking water, we're certainly not a monopoly when it comes to choice for drinking water. Third reason as to why it matters is from an environmental point of view. In terms of environmental impact and sustainability, alternatives like bottled water um, create unnecessary plastic waste. So um, broadly speaking, it's about 1,000 years for a plastic PET, plastic bottle, to break down in landfill. They litter our waterways and our environment. This image is taken from the Cooks River. So we're, Sydney Water is also a stormwater manager. So we pick up huge amounts of beverage containers in our waterways. In fact, beverage containers make up the largest proportion by volume of litter across New South Wales. So the most littered item are cigarette butts, but beverage containers are the biggest by volume. Uh, and they use considerable energy to produce transport and then dispose of. Tap water, on the other hand, has no packaging and it's locally sourced. The credentials are quite clear. Finally, it's a matter of cost. And this is kind of mind-boggling, but this isn't enough for many people to turn them back to the tap. You can buy bottled water for an average of $2.83 for a 600ml bottle. And if you're uh, meeting all of your drinking water needs, let's say about a litre and a half a day, you'd be spending over $3,000 a year just to meet your drinking needs. And yet, for the same volume of water, you could get that straight from the tap and pay $1.50 from a usage point of view. And that's just phenomenal. The markup is just amazing. Um, but when it's taken as, individual, as an individual item, people aren't giving that a lot of thought. OK, these are some of the things that we've learned. We know that when it comes to drinking water, things have really changed. No longer is tap water the only choice. Um, there are other options, and as, as Gay and Kane have said, th those other options have actually redefined people's perception around quality. They are branded, and we had many people, especially young people, who look to products that are branded and they feel that they are therefore legitimate, and anything that is anonymous is therefore not legitimate. These um, other options position themselves as clean and healthy. Um, they make quality water promises to, to the consumer. Um, they're chilled, and certainly chilling water improves the taste. So it doesn't matter whether it's tap water or any other water, if you chill it, it improves the taste. They're popular and they're visible, so they've become really common. You can see them around. And in fact, the drought did us some disservice. Many of the water fountains and bubblers and things that were across Sydney were removed during drought because the moment anything that was seen as dripping, it was gone from the public landscape. And the quotes that you can see up on the, on the screen are, are straight from the research that we've done. People are adjusting their choices as they look and listen to others. And certainly um, young people and the, the bottled water drinker, if I say, they skew towards being young. 
They skew towards being 14 to 29, but it also skews towards those that come from um, a non-English speaking background, where for many countries it's actually not safe to drink water straight from the tap. Young people see other, people, other young people drinking bottled water and that's the new normal. And many people that we, uh, the people that we um, worked with through focus groups who drank only bottled water truly believed that everyone else in Sydney was doing the same thing. So that is their normal. It's also a status symbol. So to have a filter in your home or at work or to carry bottled water with you has some status around it and um, tap water in many ways was seen as lesser. And for many, it's also been passed on through generations. What about tap water? Now, these, are the, these kind of quotes were those shared by our customers that really have an issue, that the ones that are saying they're not drinking water straight from the tap. So it's their perception that I'm sharing here. Tap water seems so old-fashioned. It seems just kind of like the thing that you do when you're really desperate. Um, you know, when you can get no other option, then you turn to tap water. Uh, it's just a drink. And, and in many ways, the people that were the tap water drinkers are pragmatic. They kind of... It's, you know, I'm quite happy with it, and it's, it's fine, but it didn't have that aspirational, on-trend kind of choice that bottled water and filtered water has. We learned really clearly, um, this came through in the behavioural research that we did, our tap water does not have a story. And so much of what exists now in products that people buy, without us doing a lot of thinking, it's conveying a story through very strong visual cues and um, things that, uh, what would you say, things that you pick up, subtle things through media and social media as well. Um, and it's come into the psyche. So tap water is anonymous. It doesn't even speak of who brought it to you. And that's something that we as Sydney Water need to address. Um, we know, as, even from our own research, that, um, that one in four of our customers, despite, as I said, us being around for 127 years, one in four of our customers don't even know who Sydney Water is. So as a brand, that's something that we need to address to, in order to make a connection with the tap water that comes to people's homes. In the meantime, bottled water has created a really powerful and emotive narrative of fresh mountain streams and, and youthful exuberance. Uh, and it's, it, it's an aspiration that many people want to sort of sign up to. We learn from this research that when it comes to perception, there are many, many things that impact perception and that drive that choice towards bottled water. And these things interplay together. So the three main things that we could pull out from our social research was that the water itself impacts people's choice and their perception. So this is whether it's chilled and whether you can see through it and whether it's, so whether it's clear, whether it tastes good, the whole physical and, and um, what would you say, taste sensation of the water, the product. The format, so... What, is the, what does that water come in? So Gay talked about the, the, the rise of PET plastic. Well, that's clearly very powerful. The water could be, if you give someone a glass of water from a tap that looks a little bit grubby, but the quality is just amazing from a tap versus a tap that is shiny, they will actually truly believe that that water is better quality from the shiny tap. 
and bottles do an amazing job of conveying quality. And then, and then the other one is the source. Now, this is something that's kind of twofold. It's the source as in some sense of where your water actually comes from, as well as the brand that brought it to you, the, the, the organisational company that brought you that water. And so I guess I encourage you all to reflect on that. When you turn on your tap, does it speak to you? Does it kind of speak to you of where that water came from or who brought you that water? And I think for many people, it certainly came through in our research, it, it doesn't. It doesn't have that same story that, that many other options have. Uh, and so it gives you some cue towards what, we've, what we are starting to understand we need to do. So let me just turn very quickly to that. We, we recognise in Sydney Water that we need to communicate very effectively with our community, with our customers. Um, from a drinking water point of view, our goal is to build trust and pride in Sydney's drinking water and to position Sydney Water as the provider of locally sourced quality water for our community because that's what we do. That sounds simple, but many people don't realise it. We know from our research that we can't just take one approach. If we're going to make some sort of shift in people's perception and certainly then shift behaviour, which is an even greater challenge, it needs to be a multi-pronged approach. We need to promote our drinking water and we need to prime on fresh, natural and the quality side of our drinking water. We actually need to talk a bit about um, the other story of bottled water, the kind of bit about what happens before it got to you as well as what happens after you've used it. And that may not be entirely Sydney Water's place to tell that story. That's often the role of others that work with us to tell that story. We need to provide people with, pro with positive taste experiences. We need to make drinking tap water a normal thing, a recognition that in fact that's what we're all, most of us are really doing that. And that comes from talking about it as well as making it publicly accessible again in all the places that we spend our time. And then we need to drive advocacy through education. Some of you may or may not have seen, this, is, this was just over the last summer, one of the, I'm just giving two examples of things that we've done recently. We, we um, rolled out a new water bar. It only, it only provides drinking water and it only provides water straight from the tap. So this was meant to provide a new experience for our customers, for our community. Anything from infused water through to chilled tap water through to the sort of normal temperature that you get from your tap. And it was about drawing people in creating a really good experience of their drinking water and providing the opportunity for our community to have a conversation with us to understand where their drinking water comes from and what we do to make sure it's protected and great quality right through to when it comes to them at their home. And we sponsored Cricket New South Wales. Now, you don't have to be a cricket fan, and I'm not a cricket fan, but the reason we did this um, was quite purposeful. Cricket came to us because Coca-Cola Amatil had pulled out as their hydration partner. And cricket wanted a partner that they could be proud of um, to promote a source of hydration, and they are the terms, the hydration, um, which is good for health and good for community. And this kind of avenue gave us a chance to rise above you know, give us a little bit more of a broader appeal to our community. It, cricket, compared to other sports, has broader appeal in terms of male and female, and it also um, connected really well with those people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. And I'll just play the video, assuming it works. And that's where I'll finish.
repositions what they think will obviously be a sports drink to a solution that they have really easy access to and doesn't use the voice of Sydney Water to share that. Um, so cricket has been fantastic to work with on that basis. They're very professional and we've, been, we've got another year ahead of working with them. We would love for you to join the movement and promoting and encouraging other people to drink tap water. It is great quality. Sydney should be really proud of what we have um, and certainly by world standards. Thank you. Thanks, Carla. That was great. Now, I'd like to ask our three panellists to come up to the um, podium. <laughs> and now, the audience, I'm sure, has got a lot of questions, because I have. <laughs> so, who's going to be first? Hello, there's one there. First question on this fabulous topic that's made me look at bottled water, drinking water, everything, just a completely different way. So, what's your question? Uh, my question's for Kylie. Thanks for your presentation. It was great. Um, I was just wondering, you mentioned about the uh, water fountains in Sydney being removed because of the drought, and I just wondered whether there was any plans to bring those back, because I think that that would have a huge impact. Um, I'm lucky enough to live in Manly, and we have water fountains everywhere and they're really well used and I just wondered um, if Sydney Water are in, intending to, I don't, I don't know whose responsibility it is to put that infrastructure in place and yeah so I was just wondering. Yeah. That's, a, um, that's one of, the, one of the, the best solutions I think that we need to work on. So the short answer is yes. Uh, we're working with local councils and New South Wales Health to look at how we can roll that out. So generally speaking, public water... So we're calling that public water in public places. Uh, local councils have the main responsibility to provide drinking water in open space and recreational sort of areas. So it's generally their lead, um, which is why we're working with, with them. We've also, through the cricket sponsorship, trying we're looking at trying to get that sort of thing into the big stadiums. I'd never realised that, um, in fact public water was taken out of big stadiums because there are commercial porridge rights with um, large beverage organisations in those sort of areas. So that's seen as a... Tap water is seen as a competition um, to, you know, where you can't... or Yeah, you need to buy 
a drink in a container. But we've had some success and um, the stadiums are quite keen to do that. So we're looking at how we can do that, you know, hand in hand with other options. So people have a choice. I, I guess my second point was also that I know that there's a recent IPART decision to reduce the cost of water to residents. And is, that, is that right? Ratepayers now will pay less for their water? So in the last, certainly the last, our new prices, um, people will pay $100 less a year around, on average. Um, so our bills have gone down. Yeah, I Our guess pricing has gone down. W- would it not have been better to use that money to provide more water infrastructure? Uh, look, I think the the big focus by by government broadly is to look at how it can support the reduction in bills for you know for things that people need. That's been a priority, so that's been first priority. But that hasn't stopped us, or that won't stop us from looking at how we can get public water back into public places. Can I just say something on that? We actually wrote about the Manly Corso reintroduction of water fountains in the book because it was a really great case study of how a local authority attempted to push back against a market because the, you know, the growth of those markets just created a massive waste litter problem on Manly Beach. Quite suddenly they found they were just dealing with overflowing garbage bins and plastic bottles just everywhere. So bringing back water fountains was their attempt to tackle that and it was, it's been very effective and people like them. But what's interesting about this is that the way in which those water fountains, they have a lot of um, uh, sort of environmental information on them. They have that, they're, they're kind of labelled and so that, that they're, they're not anonymous. They are and they say, look, taste our new chilled water. So they're, they're, they're not just public. They're kind of thinking a bit like a market in the, in the way in which they're pushing back against a market in the same sense that Sydney Water is now using the language of hydration Mm. to sell itself. So I think these are great pushbacks, but look at how how complex and subtle the effects of a market are in the sense that they change the thinking and the language of of public supplies and say to them, you know, we have to speak like a market in a sense. Mm. Mm. But that Manly example is also really interesting in terms of the new alliances that become evident between you know, people concerned with environmental, like plastic waste, and people concerned with public water. Yes. Um, you know, so it also generates new alliances um, across those different, you know, normally considered quite separate. Yes, so those, those water fountains were promoted, do your bit for climate change, reduce plastic waste. They weren't just say, sold as, here's public water for you, you're paying for it, we're making it available in public space. They were marketed. That's yeah. great, and also sounds good if they're, they're producing chilled water as well. Because I notice in quite a few places you go into now, you um, might want to fill up your bottle, which is not plastic, <laughs> and reusable, and um, you go into the toilets and they've got sort of, you know, tepid water on purpose. Mm. Is, that, is that part of the... Um... I mean, that was something that was really interesting in the emergence of hydration and the sort of um, marketing of hydrated goods to stressed and heated bodies is that coolness became a value that was really um, uh, positively valued in that context and, and, and a quality that became, um, you know, a new set of values sort of coagulated around it, I guess. So we've got another question over here. There's a microphone coming, sorry. 
Um, I'm interested in the two sides of Sydney Water's management of the stormwater, but then also the sale of the water. And in the last image, well, the, one of the first images you showed of the stormwater, the collection of the PET bottles, there only seemed to be about three of maybe 12 bottles that she was holding up to be water bottles. So to me, it looks straight away that the, the problem's actually far bigger when it comes to an environmental concern of the bottle itself. And now with the packaging laws in, this, in Australia changing, but being such an insignificant part of the value of that $2.80 bottle of water, mm-hmm. um, I wonder if like other countries around the world, um, I spend a lot of time in Germany, have kind of come to already solving that problem, but we're just not kind of committing to it because of the packaging council in Australia and because of the soft drink um, markets, like where you can buy a 20-cent bottle of water in um, Germany and you then pay on top of that 25 cents for a bottle that is designed to be industrially reused mm. opposed to mm. in a, a locally reused bottle. Mm. I guess it's to everyone as well. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not sure I understand your question. Well, you... Just that, it's that what's happened now, the 10 cents isn't enough. In the container deposit legislation. Yeah, yeah. and that it's... it's it's then socially sold to us in a very, like, oh, the homeless can get that. Yeah, the problem is Opposed to is us sold. taking responsibility for us purchasing any container on the market, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question a- accurately, but you're making a very good point. One of the ways in which beverage companies fought against the um, container deposit legislation was to say, and it's fine, bottles are recycled. So there's this continual kind of insistence that the consumer will, you know, act to redeem the effects of that market. So, you know, they say, oh, we're making recyclable bottles, so it's not a problem. It's the consumers that are doing the wrong thing. Um, And now, with container deposit legislation, you're kind of incentivising return, proper return, in a way. And again, putting it onto consumers. But beverage corporations have to bear the cost of that new legislation. So that that is a step forward. But what are they doing in Germany? That's a further step. Yeah, oh, it's like 25, cent, 25 euro cents for any PET bottle. So they can be a product that's like 20 cents. Yeah. Euro cents as well. Mm-hmm. So you know, that's like significant. I guess it's taken more. But you're paying. They've got machines everywhere and they're industrialised. Yeah. Yes. Politics. Yes. Yeah. It's a great, great example that you're raising about, A, in Germany, paying more for the real cost of that bottle, the real environmental cost of that bottle, and having a much more sophisticated return system that is genuinely going to contribute to effective plastics recycling. Yeah, that's a much better model for sure. Another question out to the front here. Microphone's coming. That's kind of comment question, just in terms of um, whether or not in your 
combined research, you um, considered the Australian Registry of um, Trademarks and Designs um, as a source for just really analysing the, the adjectival landscape of water. Um, it is a really valuable source. And also within there, there's um, a legislation that's been untested in terms of um, misleading and deceptive conduct. And there's, um, there's a whole sort of suite of potential testers in there in terms of the eco-friendly eco statements and so on. Just general comment. Oh, very interesting comment. Sydney Water will get onto that tomorrow. No, I think that's a great point. Uh, and, and someone else has actually mentioned that to me, looking into that whole area of trademarks and, and, and their dubious status. Yeah, thank you. Another question at the back there. Um, I'd be interested to know what the panel thinks about um, strategies of like banning bottled water in certain institutions or um, like uh, um, places, because there's been talk actually um, within certain circles of trying to ban bottled water on campus, but then people have raised um, a lot of issues that might come with that. But I wonder if um, some of those are just um, like perceived issues, or I, I don't know if it's founded on evidence or not, or I'd just be interested to know. Do we agree with banning the bottle? Uh, certainly, I guess, I guess from Sydney Water's point of view... It, Do it. Yes. <laughs> our, our position, and you can see in what, we've been, what we're trying to do, our position is not to alienate, and I know Gay mentioned this at the very beginning, to alienate or demonise, because at the end of the day, we're a public organisation and our promotion and our position is, is about people having informed choice. It, it truly is. Like whether my position, my personal position, can be different, but the organisation's position is one about looking out for our community to make sure it's equipped with all of the information, knows it can absolutely trust its drinking water straight from the tap, but it is a choice. It's actually a personal choice. Mm. Uh, but there are many examples internationally as well as within Australia where organisations or places, um, geographies... Um, have tried to actually make, have made a statement, have made a choice to actually not have bottled water for very good reasons, often in relation to plastic waste as a signal around um, where they stand in terms of their values around environment particularly. Um, but to make that kind of choice, you do have to make sure you've got other... You, you do have other options available. And I would say right now in the Sydney landscape, unfortunately, when you're out and about... There are other options other than tap water that are sometimes more easily available as long as you've got money in your pocket. Yeah, I mean, look, I, banning, being the sort of liberal that I am, I don't like to ban anything, not in public anyway, there's quite a few things I'd ban in private. <laughs> but but um, one of the issues with banning it is, as Kylie said, I mean, and again, defending free choice is a kind of market rhetoric, but in many places there are simply not alternatives to purchasing water, and that is bad. There needs to be a multiplicity of choices, and those choices, some of those choices need to be free. They need to make water universally available. In, in, you know, in, in the history of cities, you will find fountains all through them, which were part of the, the kind of sense of the city space. If you're travelling through the city, 
Uh, there was this place where you could water yourself and your animals. Those kind of traditions have collapsed. They are part of the sense of the city as a, as a common space where gathering around water is a form of strange sociability. And so we need you know, alternatives to just market forms of supply. Uh, I've, certainly I've discussed this on many campuses and people have said to me, for example, the student union is, is, is living off its um, beverage sales often. So you know, sales from that are going to, to, to supply a whole lot of um, support services to students. So banning is a very tricky strategy. What you need is a multiplicity of choices and for many of those choices to be free and public. Is that really a question, though, it comes down to, you know, how, how um, serious the, the negative impact and the externalities are? Because if you're not actually, um, you know, accounting for them properly, yeah. you're actually diminishing the, 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 the quantity of those externalities. Mm -hmm. For instance, you know, we have no problem with banning people driving without a seatbelt. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because someone's decided that the public good is worth it. So maybe, mm -hmm. you know... Mm -hmm. academics and Sydney Water can't say maybe that's for the community to do. But anyway, mm -hmm. we've got a question here. Thank you. Hi, um, thanks guys. Um, I was wondering if any of you had looked at um, how in the States the utilities, the water utilities are not publicly owned necessarily. A lot of the time they're actually privately owned or influenced at least. If you had a look at how that impacts their water system and how it compares to Australia. No, we didn't look into that, but there's plenty of evidence to show that the minute you start privatising water supplies, things can go very seriously and badly wrong. I mean, there's examples where it works and it's good, but there's plenty of examples where the privatisation of public systems just leads to a decline in maintenance, a decline in standards, and that's precisely... Well, that isn't what happened in Flint, actually, because that was still a publicly owned water supply. It was just appallingly badly managed and there was not the public investment in maintaining it properly. So it's hard to sort of set up a, a clear boundary between if it's private, it's definitely bad and I don't want to get into those kind of binaries and oppositions. They're not effective. You have to look very closely at what's happening in, in this particular setting. Who's taking responsibility for water and how are they accepting that responsibility in the name of the public interest or in the name of corporate benefit? Another question? I just had a really quick comment about the banning um, yeah. topic. Um, cigarettes haven't been banned. Um, they've just been given plain packaging. So, and on the, on the basis of the you know, public health argument and the, you know, the public good to environment, mm. plain but, packaging for bottles. And also disallowed from campus. <laughs> um, no, I mean, you're not allowed to smoke on campus. And it is interesting because... Um, yeah, I think I have a different response to the ban. <laughs> I mean, I, I'd be quite interested to think about what the sorts of objections are that you've come across, whoever asked the question, to, um, you know, banning water on campus. What sorts of objections are there to that that are voiced in the... Yeah. 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 Well. But, I mean, I brought up um, the exhibition of actually also selling like very cheap reusable bottles and next to like a bubbler or something. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. I mean, you'd want to sort of ban all PET single serve bottles, wouldn't you? <laughs> if you did this. The beverage industry couldn't function. <laughs> Could I just No, I'm talking about on campuses, though. Oh, on campus, yeah. 
I just wanted to ask a question. You mentioned fizzy drinks, and it occurred to me that one of the drivers to going for help, you know, for water, um, was actually move away from fizzy yes. drinks. Is that true? Is yes. That actually, absolutely. In fact, yeah. um, New South Wales Health mm -hmm. is now running a campaign saying. Um, so, make, so they're running a campaign which is around making healthy normal. And so Make Water Your Drink is one of the central kind of pieces of that campaign. Yeah, and thankfully the image is someone sitting there with a glass of water, <laughs> yeah, which is very good because we've seen and we write about these in the book, other campaigns which are promoting the use of drinking water as opposed to drinking sweetened beverages. Mm. And they're basically promoting bottled water yeah. instead. So Certainly in a lot of the hydration discourse as well. I mean, hydration becomes the solution to everything, but one of the things it becomes the solution to more recently is uh, things like sugar-sweetened beverages, yeah. Um, yeah. obesity... Diabetes. And, and, yeah, diabetes. That's what we should so. ban. <laughs> <laughs> Some more questions? Well, there's two. <laughs> so the, um, perhaps this lady here saying you haven't spoken yet. Hi, thank you for that. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but are people aware that our rates and taxes are going to Sydney Water and then part of that money is going into advertising campaigns and to Sydney Cricket? And that we're paying for this. Sorry, can you... I, I just didn't quite hear... So part of our rates and taxes go to Sydney Water as a public um, facility. Yep. Are people aware that part of that money is going for you to counter-market these bottled waters and to pay Sydney Cricket to further market water that we're paying for anyway. So it's like so a double, double dipping, really. We're paying twice, aren't we? Are people, so the question is, are people aware that their money, when they pay for water, is going to market is going that, towards marketing going that towards water? That. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess everyone have to, would have to answer that themselves personally. Sydney Water has budget for us to communicate and educate, and we know from our customer research. So the, the research we do every quarter right across our, whole customer, across our whole customer base that our customers want us to do more communication and more education. So what we did with Cricket was actually very low key when it comes to sponsorship um, from a value, in terms of dollar value point of view. What we did before we even went that far was to take that actually up to Parliament to make sure that our government was comfortable that we should do something like that. And the reason that we did it was something was to do with health, was to do the matter of promoting a, a, what would you say, a better choice for our community rather than a sugary drink. But it was also about promoting and educating our customers and our community around drinking water because from our research we know very clearly they don't know a lot and they want to know more. So we did it, I guess, with that licence, but we don't expressly... You know, whether people know the detail of how the whole of Sydney Water's budget spent, I couldn't say, but it's a drop in the ocean. The value of the education communications we do is a drop in the ocean when you consider the full amount of what we spend on assets and looking after all of our infrastructure. It's very, very small. Was there a cost-benefit analysis made, perhaps, on the, the cost of cleaning up bottles from the, you know, stormwater and all the other costs you have to bear, perhaps? 
We have. I mean, this was the first. This last season was the first season that we've actually gone and made the um, had the partnership with cricket. Uh, but part of what we do is look at. We've, we've got to do that. We do evaluation on any of our major communications and education to make sure that it actually proves to be effective. So, do people notice? Are they feeling that they understand? something more about Sydney's drinking water than they did before, just taking that as a small example. And yeah. Well, yeah, there are costs, but, uh, I mean, it's a common... There's often an accusation that it's unfair that monopolies or public authorities advertise, that that's unfair to the market, that they have an unfair advantage because they're a monopoly, so why are they sort of promoting themselves. But I would say that our research showed that the rise of aggressive marketing from bottle market, from from beverage companies, has forced public water authorities to promote their values in the public interest. They have had to fight back against that. And as Kylie's research has shown, 40% of people aren't drinking water from the tap in, in a city where there's probably one of the best water supplies in the world. Now that, that is... That decline in accessing water from the tap is directly connected to the rise of all these new waters, aggressive marketing on the part of beverage companies. I think Sydney Water has, has, has every right to and needs to market and communicate with Sydney siders in the public interest. Uh, it, it's got you know, massive public benefits to stop that inexorable drift away from the tap. Another question here and then, yes. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for a wonderful presentation. I personally would like to see all the bottles, uh, plastic bottles go. <laughs> but uh, I, I was just curious if you have any uh, figure as to how many percentage of water actually we're drinking as coffee making and uh, tap water or tea making. Compare, uh, you know, amongst other things we do, garden and uh, bathroom and kitchen things. And I have another question, which is, is there a legislation which says a restaurant in Sydney or wherever have to provide um, free tap water? If you do, I think it's wonderful. And I have drunk water like in Brussels, and this is a horrible, so it's really wonderful to have Sydney water. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've just already forgotten the first question, but I'll answer the second question. Certainly any licensed premises has to provide access to tap water, and many cafes and restaurants do that as a matter of course, and some actually actively promote that they have tap water available. In fact, there were cafes... um, when we kicked off our tap campaign back in 2011, we had about 450 cafes that sort of signed up being quite passionate about supporting and promoting that people should drink water straight from the tap and they, they've got special bottles that, that promote that. But your first question was... Remind me. The um, relative amount of drinking versus Oh, OK. Oh, gosh. Gary, do you know? What proportion of water is made up of drinking versus all of the other water that is used in the household. That level of detail we don't have. But what we do know, what I do know, is that the largest proportion of water used in average daily use for people is in the outdoors. So during drought, one of the most effective forms of 
restricting water use and restrict, you know, reducing water use was actually targeted to reducing outdoor water use, and that made a huge difference to Sydney's overall water use um, when we were during drought. But I'll take that away, and I'll find an answer to that question because I don't know it. <laughs> Got another two questions over there next to that lady, and then back to at the back here. Hi, uh, just just a last question. Um, I noticed that you talked about people having concerns about tap water, but in your research, did you have people who are actually concerned about drinking? I'm more concerned about drinking bottled water and how safe that is compared to what comes out of my tap. And I know there's been lots of things in the media about the old-fashioned sort of water coolers that had uh, water in plastic, and Mm -hmm. and I wondered if that's had a bit of a counter effect to the Mm -hmm. bottled water market at all, Mm -hmm. and if you knew if there's any truth behind any of those claims. Do you know, I, I don't know whether there's much published research on the impact of water and how water quality changes in plastic, um, but that's something that we're quite interested in. Uh, what, we are, what we're actually also interested in is in the rise of filtered water. So people, uh, and this is a bit of a status symbol, you know, if you've got a filter on your tap at home, you... You know, you're seen as being sort of <laughs> moving up there in the world, <laughs> apparently. Um, you said it's certainly marketed that way. One of the challenges with filtered water is that, in fact, people are still drinking tap water, uh, which is great. However, they, the field general, this is, we're doing some research to confirm whether this is the case, but many people will put in place a filter, but they won't clean it. And so, in fact, what they're doing is introducing a risk to, of contamination to their water because anything that goes through something regularly, you know, if you drink some sort of clean beverage out of a cup and never, ever wash that cup and just keep replacing it, eventually it's actually not going to be particularly safe to drink from. Uh, so there are broader public health issues around that. Um, that's a matter that New South Wales Health tend to... They do the research on those sort of things. Um, what we're more interested in is, I guess, the choices that people are making uh, and then, you know, I guess directing our customers to the right information to help them, if they are going to choose filtered water, at least make sure you clean your filters. Uh, there, sorry, there's certainly been some major scares around bottled water and contamination scares. Perrier's had one where it found bromide in the water. It's a carcinogen. Uh, Dasani, when it was launched in London, was found to, you know, that something went wrong with the treatment, the, you know, osmosis of whatever treatment they were using and, and the water was toxic. So... You know, there's been some serious scares around the quality of, of bottled water. And the, the, the key issue to note here is that bottled water is not regulated like tap water. Tap water is, is, is... Water quality tests happen at Sydney Water, what, four times a day or something? So it's continuous. So it's, it's continuous water quality monitoring. testing. Bottled water is considered a food product. The, the regulation is lax and soft. It's rarely tested. Thank you. One more question. Um, thank you, everyone, for very interesting uh, talks. I found it really interesting how bottled water is all about being convenient and fast, and it seems very individualistic. And I was just wondering how you've seen or how you would like to see the role of uh, tap water in building community space and community interaction. There's so many new um, suburbs are growing in Sydney. I, I, I live um, in Zetland and there's like Waterloo, there's things going up everywhere. And how planning that you can plan around tap 
water and make that a really fun and use imagination so it's like people prefer it's more of a social thing mm. rather than just a boring mm. thing mm. Um, have you seen any examples mm. of that working that's a lovely thought that's a great question mm. yeah um, I love it the, the, the notion of our Sydney, our water, was actually kind of born from the, the idea of the fact that it is ours. And, and Sydney was meant to be broadly inclusive, not just sort of the city of Sydney, um, and to cel- celebrate that this is actually our water, it's our public water, we have a sense of connection to it, it comes from this place. You know, there's so, we've got drinking water catchments that bring, you know, mostly, most of Sydney's drinking water is from rainwater collected in natural catchment areas, stored in protected areas and then brought to us. And that idea is something that I think would be very powerful. Um, and I, I agree. I think it, it's very much part of the story of our, of our drinking water and it should be shared. So I think we've um, come to our last question. Would you uh, panellists like to say anything else? No, thanks for your questions. They're great. Yeah. Challenging. Oh, oh there is one, one more, more question. Let's, let's yeah, go for it. Let's go for it. Thanks, thanks a lot, guys. Um, just a question around um, the duck water and rainwater. I mean, you mentioned there was about 2% of people drinking the rainwater. What's the position of um, training or educating people uh, that live in the houses, own houses, to actually use the rainwater, filter the rainwater, and drink the rainwater? I mean, as a, as a Sydney water, so you do the same thing, right? You collect the rainwater, you filter it, and you distribute it. And there's a lot of... From a sustainability point of view, there is a lot of investment, a lot of costs into distributing the water. Why don't we actually just reuse the rainwater? Why do we have to distribute it? I guess that's my question. Well, we'll all have a shot at this. Um, (laughs) I mean, look, look, that's an interesting question too. And if you think about what's happening with energy and, I guess, de... de decentralising energy supply, you're getting these new energy... I mean, first of all, you've got people with their home solar, now you're getting small energy grids being set up uh, where people are, you know, becoming their own energy suppliers and generating new sorts of forms of social and technical arrangements to to, um, break up the grid, in a sense. You can see how that works with energy and there are some really interesting models of genuine technical and social innovation around energy production and sharing. Whether that would work with water is another question. The issue about tanks is that you could see them as like, ta- as like bottles. They're a way of opting out of public supply. Now, you could say that they're more sustainable, um, but they are a way of individualising water supply. And I, I feel like water supply should be as the previous question said, a community thing, a shared thing, it should be part of the way in which you generate a sense of common, being in common with other people. Uh, so I don't know whether you can de- decentralise water supply and whether you can develop more community-based commons mechanisms for providing mm-hmm. water, but I don't see tanks as the sort of ideal alternative. Mm. Um, just to say that when I was doing research in Bangkok, um, a lot of Thais talked about uh, rain as um, a sort of quality that they valued in drinking water, the taste of rain. And um, I think in some uh, Thai houses in the countryside, um, there is an old-fashioned way of, of um, uh, that's quite particular to Thai society, of collecting rainwater in these big ongs and so on. Um, but, of course, when you start to think about urban contexts like Bangkok... 
I don't know if I'd drink rainwater that was collected through, <laughs> given the, the sort of air quality issues um, in, in these very densely um, populated urban environments. So that does sort of raise the question about alternative distribution mechanisms, I guess. Yeah, and one more thing I'd say on that is opting out, that is becoming your own supplier of water and energy, getting off the grid or whatever, that's kind of the ultimate neoliberal dream, isn't it? Why have a state if everyone just can sort out sort of their basic resources for themselves? So it's got a, trou- it's got a kind of troubling underside. I think that there is a sense in which you have to defend the way in which water connects us, the way in which water is not a private or personal responsibility. It's what we share. We're sharing living in Sydney. We're sharing a catchment. It needs to be distributed as fairly and universally as possible. And Carly, would you like to... What's Sydney's Sydney water position? What's the Sydney water position? Uh, I mean, it's actually the New South Wales health position that anyone that lives in an area that has access to town water shall connect to that town water. And it, it, it becomes a public health matter. So whether it's it, which is largely driven by the fact that the quality of water collected off roofs in urban areas is different right across an urban area, and people's individual management of that quality of water would be different right across that urban area, and there isn't enough to truly look after the quality of that water for public health. So on that basis. And, and drinking water is such a low volume compared to uh, like the question before about well, what's the most use of water? The greatest use of water is the outdoor water use. So in fact the rainwater tanks that were brought into the city landscape were largely driven during drought and they were there for people to then harvest water to use largely for outdoor water use, um, which, has, which certainly has some benefit for, for, for drinking. I would say certainly wherever there, there is a safe reliable water supply that is protected and monitored and insured, then that is by far a better choice for our community um, to know that they have that quality water and it's, and it's regulated, it's tested um, and you know that you can trust it. Thank you very much. I think tonight's been fantastic. We've learnt about the history of water, we've learnt about corporations and marketing, uh, we've learnt about plastic that um, ends up in the environment and just a thousand years to, to mm. decompose is just extraordinary. And I think all these things get hidden under the beautiful image of you know, a, a bottle of water that looks really cool in the ad. So anyway, thank you for enlightening us all. And please <laughs> we'll see you at the next um, talks. Thank you.